Welcome to the PhD Talk podcast. I'm Eva Lansart, a professor in civil engineering and blogger on the side. And I am Sarah Cameron, PhD student and work in organizational psychology. In this podcast, we talk about PhD research and interview current PhD candidates, as well as those who work closely with them. We hope you'll stick around. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the PhD Talk podcast. Today's episode 63 and we'll be interviewing Ed Sadal, who is a math curriculum designer for Oak National Academy, an online school in the UK, and a teacher training at the University of Huddersfield in England. He started his PhD in 2015 and plans to finish in June 2023. So with this very brief introduction, Ed, could you tell us a bit more about your background and your career path? Sure, yeah. Um, so I have worked in education um, my whole life, my whole working life. Um, I started uh, as a teacher, a teacher of maths and computing. And I did that for about five years. And then I, uh, I moved abroad uh, to the Middle East for another four years. And out there I was doing... Um, like teaching consultancy and training existing te- like retraining existing teachers um which was really really interesting and very hot mm-hmm. um <laughs> then i came back to england and did some school leadership stuff uh and then segued from there into university um and i took a job at, at a local university and uh, the job was really interesting. It was 50% um, training teachers and 50% being like seconded out to, to local schools as like an expert teacher. So um, I, was, I was kind of um, training the new teachers, but also kind of living their experience by, by continuing to teach uh, children at the same time. Um, and that's when I started my um, sort of academic life and doing, um, I, I, I began my very long journey on my PhD. Um, and I became course leader uh, for the teacher training course uh, and did that for a number of years. And then I left the university um, about six months ago. Uh, I still do a little bit of work for them. Um, but I now work for uh, an online school which was set up in in lockdown. Um, it was set up by like uh, a group of teachers and and uh, head teachers and people in education uh, very quickly to essentially provide online support across the country for um, people who uh, didn't have much access to education or. or um, didn't have much access to teachers because obviously it was all a bit chaotic at the time and so forth. Uh, so that's that's kind of my relatively brief, but not that brief journey <laughs> that brings me to today. Okay, that's great. Thank you. And uh, this might be a two or maybe three part question, but I'm curious uh, if you could tell us first about your motivation to pursue a PhD um, and then a little bit more about your uh, research and the sort of day to day currently of your PhD. Brilliant. Um, well, the what typically happens in, in England is if you if you take on a, 
an, an academic job at a university. So if you're if you're a member of the teaching or research staff, um, the, it, it's very very common that there's an expectation that you are either uh, you either have a PhD or you are studying towards a PhD. Um, and if you're relatively lucky, then they will pay for that PhD. And if you're relatively unlucky, then they will pay a little bit for it and you have to pay the rest. Um, fortunately for me, the university that I uh, was working at uh, was paying for it in full. Um, and it was part of the reason I really wanted to do the job. Um, I've, I've, I think I've always wanted to do a PhD. Um, I did a master's when I was abroad, which kind of opened the door to, to, to do higher qualifications after that. Um, and I, I think maybe it was, it was when I was abroad that it, it was really instilled in me just how valuable those qualifications were. Um, because in, I was in the United Arab Emirates and out there, they like seeing from outside of England, just how valuable English qualifications are perceived, mm -hmm. um, I guess made me appreciate them even more, um, which, which kind of fired me up even more to, to, to continue my studies. And I really enjoyed my master's um, as an adult learner um, far, far more than I did enjoy my sort of undergraduate degree as a sort of 19, 20-year-old who wasn't really sure why he was in <laughs> university other than that's kind of what you do next sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, that, that that's why I embarked upon it. Um, and I've kind of enjoyed it. I, I, it's, it's definitely been a lot of ups and downs, but for the most part, I, I enjoy the study. It's just finding the space to do it that I think is the most difficult thing for me personally. And within your PhD, what are you? What's your topic of research? <laughs> How long have you got? Uh, so <laughs> I'm looking at the the introduction of uh, the what I think is the first ever in our country sort of state-sponsored textbook uh, in primary schools, in, in like grade schools. Essentially, the, uh, there was a, a round of like procurement where, where the government was saying, we, we want people to submit uh, different types of uh, textbooks to be used to teach maths. Um, and they were going to pick essentially the best, what they perceived as the best ones and subsidize them for schools. So they only ended up picking one text, which was a bit controversial at the time. So for, for a while, there was just a single text that the government would partially subsidize for schools to take to, to use. Um, so that was what I wanted to look at. And so within that kind of realm, Specifically, I was looking at schools that had already been using that book before it was announced. So these schools have the program embedded. They're not just, you know, just beginning with it. They're, they've been doing it for sort of two, three years. And looking at the, the influence of like teacher agency on a very prescribed teaching program. So these textbooks come with um, like... Uh, the, the slides and the resources and, and the exercises that the students do right down to like some of the key questions that teachers should be asking and how to differentiate the questions and how to assess the students at each stage. It really is a very 
close sort of hand holding mm. for teachers to use. So I was really interested in like, well, okay, over, over let's say three years of using that program, how does that manifest against teacher agency? You know, people want to do stuff in their own way and they want to, they're going to adapt. Well, I think they're going to adapt things and, you know, rather than just completely do it as prescribed to the bone without feeling like they have any kind of ownership over what they're doing or, or like satisfaction, right? Like you need some kind of influence over it. So I looked at sort of nine, nine different teachers uh, across, I think, five different schools. And I watched each of them teach these maths lessons uh for three sequential days, so like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, or whatever, so that I could see what was happening between lessons and how one lesson would influence the next lesson and so on. Um, and I did all that, and it was great, and I've got some really interesting stuff. I find it f absolutely fascinating still, which apparently is quite unusual to be <laughs> this late <laughs> on in your PhD and still be like, it's quite interesting. But yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> that's about as short as I can make it um, for people who have no idea uh, of the context and so forth. But but yeah, it's really, really interesting. Hmm. It certainly sounds like it. And jumping, I guess, zooming out a little bit, just in terms of the structure of your PhD, uh, I guess you're, you're doing this alongside a full-time job. And I'm just curious, yeah, how you're finding that balance. Um, and also maybe if you can talk a little bit about any coursework you've done or if you've had to teach, I guess, also in the, your role as a PhD student, um, a little bit more about the structure of your, your PhD. Sure, yeah. It's So I haven't had to do any teaching for the PhD, but obviously my, my day job for, for, for like 90% of the time that I've been doing it uh, is, is lecturing, right? So, so right. I've been doing full-time teacher training um, with this in the background. So it's, it's a part-time PhD, which is why I've had so long to do it. <laughs> um, typically, uh, you're given sort of uh, between sort of five, five or six years, plus you've got like little bits of room for extensions here and there, and then, you, then you're able to take a year for a write-up. So I have taken the full amount of time, which leads me up to June this year. And then I've, I've opted for a write-up, which takes me to June next year. Uh, and that really is like the cutoff of hand it in or die sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> so I've taken it right to the end. But one of the reasons I've taken it right to the end is because it's really, really hard to do a full-time job alongside this kind of like behemoth <laughs> thing that's lurking in the background. Um, and... Uh, you know, raising three children, it's, it's, it's really, really hard. And in, in a kind of weird twist of fate, like leaving the university has enabled me more space to do it than being within academia, which is kind of odd, but um, that's just how it seems to have panned out. Um, but in terms of like modules and stuff, um, so the structure for, for what I did, essentially when I had two choices at the beginning. I could do an EdD or a PhD. Um, an EdD is like an equivalent qualification, um, and it that that course has like assignments front loaded, mm -hmm. and those assignments 
reduce the word count for your like thesis at the end. Mm. Um, I opted <laughs> perhaps foolishly to do the PhD, which doesn't have assignments front loaded and the word count is way bigger as, as a consequence. So right. I, I don't get to kind of cash in little bits early on. It's just like put it all at the end and hand me this massive tome um, <laughs> and hope for the best. But we do have like an introduction year where you have like mandatory lectures to, to attend, where they talk you through like research methods and, and that sort of thing. So, so that's the kind of the typical mm -hmm. structure. Uh, you were already mentioning that you're working full time, doing your PhD, and you have a family. So I wanted to talk a little bit more about that. How do you combine your various responsibilities? With great difficulty. <laughs> um, honestly, it, it's just chaos. It's, it's never ending chaos. Um, it wasn't like the children thing wasn't a huge, I don't want to say problem, but like, well, a barrier is probably a better word. It wasn't a huge barrier earlier on because they were younger. Right. Um, but the job was so busy that that kind of engulfed everything. Um, whereas now, um, I feel like I've got more freedom around the job. I've got a very flexible job now, but my children are, are at that kind those ages where you're just kind of like taxiing them everywhere all the time to do scouts and swimming and football and rugby. And it just feels like your days don't stop until mm. 9, 9.30 PM. Mm. And then I can stay awake another hour and a half or so, but I'm just not in a frame of mind to be like, okay, now it's time to do some really deep thinking about academia. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so it has been a constant struggle for probably two or three reasons that have just kind of at different points in the journey inflated or deflated. Um, but but I, I'm, I'm chipping away, you know, I... I I got the re I, I've got the data. I obviously didn't know that COVID was going to happen and so on. But there's there's a lot of people who are in who were in a similarish position to me, who've had their data collection just completely disrupted by lockdowns mm -hmm. and so forth. So I count myself lucky in that regard. But I've definitely been in quite a long cycle of like, yeah, all I've got to do is write it up now. <laughs> <laughs> And then six months later, how's it going? Yeah, all I've got to do is write it up now. And yeah. he's kind of looking at this blank mm -hmm. document thinking, mm, I haven't written very much at all. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so as someone who's been on this, I guess, yeah, roller coaster maybe is an accurate term of combining yeah. academic life and being uh, a full-time parent as well. I'm curious if you'd have any advice for others who are maybe about to embark on a similar journey. Yeah, I, I find this difficult because all I would say almost all the advice I've had it, it feels like it's been terrible. <laughs> <laughs> um, because it's been coming from people who aren't living like I live, like like people who don't have kids saying, oh, you've just got to make time. And you're like, yeah, but how? Or people being really unhelpful and saying, you know, I'll be, I'll be saying, oh, but I've got to take so-and-so to swimming. I've got to, and they're just, they're just like, yeah, you've got to make sacrifices. 
And it's like, well, I'm not going to not take my kids' places. <laughs> I'm not just going to say, no, you can't do all these things while you're growing up because daddy's got to kind of lock himself away all the time. Um, I think the best advice has, has come much later in in my journey, which which has just been like to to be content with taking really small steps, but just make sure that you are taking steps. And and it's 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 almost the latter part of that advice that is that is key. So my biggest struggle, which has probably cost me eighteen months of stalling and stalling and stalling, has been just stopping and then picking it up again two, three months later. And what that does for me is it just it just makes it feel more and more overwhelming to get back into it because you've forgotten stuff and you've kind of forgotten the flow of writing and you've forgotten that flow of that, that kind of cycle of reading, note-taking, processing, comparing. And then I don't know, I don't know about you guys, but like I, I getting back into it, it basically follow a tick list every time. Like you, you'll start and you'll go, right, what am I going to do first? I'll re I'll reread what I've already got. And then you're like, that's progress. And then you'll spend a week downloading PDFs, but not reading any of them. And you're like, <laughs> well, at least I'm gathering stuff. So I've got stuff to read. And then, <laughs> and, and it takes like two weeks to just start writing again from the moment you're like, I'm, I need to write to the moment you are actually typing anything that's not utter rubbish. You've just got this, this really predictable, like procrastination <laughs> until you get to that point. And I think, what I've learned far too late in the game is like if I could just write a hundred words a day or or even a hundred words a week, that's so much better than doing absolutely nothing because mm -hmm. it's in your head, you, it's a, it's kind of percolating in the background so that you you don't have that perspective of it just being just this huge thing in the closet that you don't want to go near. Obviously, you're not going to get it all done if you're only writing a few hundred words a week or whatever. But that picks up pace as and you, as you get more confident and and as you as you've read a bit more, you're like, okay, actually, I can write two thousand words today, and that's that's going to be fine because I've read so much in the last two weeks or, or whatever it is. Um, that to me has been critical, and I just wish someone said near the beginning, like, just just write a, a, a couple of hundred words a week. At, you know, right at the beginning of your journey and just never stop doing that. Never stop doing that. Because that is not a big ask. I think I don't I don't care what you've got on your plate. A hundred, two hundred words a week is nothing. But if it feels like loads to you, it's probably because you haven't been doing it before already. <laughs> like like I haven't written for about three weeks now and or and in my head I'm like oh, two hundred words sounds like a lot. It's not. You can do it in like half an hour if you if, if you know what you're writing about um but yeah just keep keep the fire burning i think is is the the easiest thing um and yet you are going to have to find space for it as i said one of the big things for me has been changing jobs which which feels really counterintuitive you'd, you'd think in academia you'd have a lot more freedom to to do your writing um my particular course i think broke that that um notion just because it it was never ending like the students wouldn't 
leave until July, and then you'd have the new ones in September. Whereas most university courses start at the end of October and finish kind of April-ish. You've got this huge space in the middle. Well, we just didn't have that. Um, I actually wanted to follow up on what you were saying of stopping and picking it up again. And uh, one of the reasons we wanted to interview you is that you had mentioned you your PhD has taken some twists and turns, and at some point you decided to, to quit the PhD. So could you tell us a bit about the thought process that went behind that and then how you actually decided to, to pick it up again? Yeah, so I, I absolutely did quit. <laughs> and I, I contacted everyone at the university and I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm really sorry, but I'm formally withdrawing from this. I just can't do it. And then literally two weeks later, fortunately, they hadn't processed anything. I was like emailing them back going, wait, wait, wait. And that was really recently. That was like October. And I think it was, a, it was, it was when I realized that I had been, I mentioned this earlier, it's when, I, when you kind of look back and realize that for almost probably 18 months, I'd been saying to people, yeah, I've got my data. I just need to write it up. And I was like, I haven't written anything. I, I, I've literally written 3,000 words in 18 months. It was, it, it basically just stopped. And when I changed jobs, uh, I was thinking this, this will be the thing I need. And uh, I was, there were loads of points where I was thinking what I need is this thing and then I can do it. And then, then that thing happens and you don't do it. And you're like, oh, well, maybe then what I need is this other thing, like a change of job or a change of role or, or whatever it was. That thing comes along and then you don't write anymore. And you're like, oh, well, when am I going to write? Um, so I did, I, I, I changed jobs and I was like, this is it. This is going to give me all the freedom I need. I don't have all those burdens of, of X, Y, Z. I've only got like uh, sort of 20 months to get this thing done now. It's now or never, let's go, go, go. And about two months into my new job, I was looking at it and just thinking nothing's changing or, or, or nothing's changing enough. There's no way logistically between now and when I need to get this thing in, I'm going to do enough writing. And because I'd left academia, academia as well, I was like, do I need the PhD now? Was I doing it just because I was at university? So I had all these kind of doubts and I just kind of resigned myself to this idea that nothing's going to change. It's not about the, the changing the situation it's about my headspace and I'm just not willing to write if 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 I can find like time space but I'm not doing it and that's telling me that I don't actually want to do this anymore um so I quit and f for like t 24 hours I was elated I was just like oh the burden has gone I am so 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 relieved I don't have to think about this thing anymore because it just hangs over you, especially if you're not writing. It is just always there. Uh, and it, it's, it's kind of depressing in some ways. You're just like, whatever you do with your life, you're like, oh, but I'm going to have to do that thing at some point. It's just over there. I can see it in the corner of my eye. Um, but then what, what happened was I just started feeling worse not better that I'd quit and I was like I've come so far with this thing why would I quit now and I had this real sort of tension because people who don't know you 
like, or, or well, I'll rephrase, people who don't know what you're doing with your PhD, but know you're doing one, would say things like, oh, but you're so close to the end, what are you doing? And I'm like, no, I'm so close to the end in time, <laughs> but I'm not yeah. so close to the end in terms of what I've got to do. But yeah, I just felt bad about it. And I thought, I thought, okay, I think what I want to do is get back on the wagon with this thing and be comfortable with the idea that I might not finish, but that I'm not ready to make that decision until the last possible moment. And this isn't the last possible moment. So I'm back on it. There is a, a reasonable chance that I will not finish, but I feel better about it. I am writing. I think I am going to do it. I really want to do it. I think that's that's the big thing. I suspect I'll do what almost everyone I've ever known who's got a PhD did and just completely steamroll it full throttle with like five months to go. <laughs> but the, the key thing is I think I'm going to get it done. And I, I really hope I, I hope I can come back to you mid, mid year next year and just be like, yeah, I did it. But genuinely, it, it's absolutely not a done deal. I, I think there's still plenty of chance of me getting to sort of February or March next year and just going, it's it's just not going to happen. But at least at that point, I'll have, I'll have given it everything in terms of every opportunity to do it. And, and, and I'll just, I think I'll be more content with, well, I, it was never going to happen, but I'm going to go. I'm going to try. <laughs> um, fingers crossed uh, yeah. for you as well. Um, and for you to finish, uh, maybe we should have asked this earlier on in the interview, um, but can you talk a little bit about what's required of you um, with your thesis or, or manuscript in order to finish the PhD? Yeah, so I have to write between 90 and 100,000 words. <laughs> I'm I know this is yeah. a podcast, but I just saw your faces, <laughs> um, which is a hell of a lot. Essentially, that's all I've got to do, right? I mean, it's very easy to say that's all. Um, but you just you submit this 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 huge thesis that has that has a you know there's there's a fairly typical structure that you're supposed to keep to, but you don't have to keep to it. But it would be a bit higher risk to not to, uh, with like you know your typical sort of literature review and, and um, like framing it and doing your, your analysis and you conclude you know it, it's a standard writing frame really. Um, the the literature review has been the thing that's just been hanging over me forever. Um, I, I don't think I'll ever be happy with it. And I think that's that's one of the things I st I'm still yet to overcome to just kind of go, just leave it now and move on. Um, but you've got this awful feeling. The thing with the literature review, like my, my supervisor says, just just stop writing towards it and just write up the, the stuff you've done. But I feel like I can't do that because it needs to constantly cross-reference back to the literature. And if the literature is not all there, then it feels really messy in my head. But yeah, in, in terms of what I submit, next June, I have to just hand in this massive pile <laughs> and go, <laughs> go mark that. So shifting topics here a little bit, we have a few general questions that we ask all our interviewees. Okay. And the first one is, what is your best advice? piece of advice for PhD students? Take your time with deciding what you're going to look at. And it's got to be like really interesting to you, I think. Mm -hmm. um, I, I changed my PhD entirely after 12 months because it just 
didn't feel like it was going to work and I didn't find it that interesting. I think everybody goes on that inevitable journey of going, I'm going to look at this thing and it's like massive. And then over the next 18 months, it gets narrower and narrower and narrower until you're talking about the most like niche little detail of something that, that at the beginning of your PhD, you'd think there's no way I'm going to study something that narrow. Um, but like the deeper you go, the more you're just like, I have to narrow this down or mm -hmm. it's just utterly overwhelming. But, but if you don't enjoy it, like if you don't enjoy the actual content of what you're doing, I can only imagine how demotivating it would be to be just sat thinking about what you've got to do and how much you've got to do and not even like what you're writing about. And that, that sounds easy to do. Like it sounds easy to just go, yeah, I, I like that topic. I'm going to study that. I'm mad on maths and education. And my original thing that I was looking at was, was those things, but it just didn't work. Don't worry if it takes you eight months, 12 months longer to get your ideas sorted in your head and then convince yourself that it's the right thing and that it's exciting and then dive like fully into it I think that's that's really important for motivation mm. yeah I think that's a great point because the PhD is going to bring so many other challenges if you're not passionate about your topic then I yeah I can imagine it'd be very hard to make it through definitely like, like that's the main thing with me when I do write I'm I really enjoy the writing because what I'm reading about and what I'm what I've studied is is genuinely fascinating to me Mm. Yeah, that uh, I think intrinsic curiosity, I th that's what motivated me to do a PhD in the first place. And I'm hoping and now I'm only a few months in, but that that will sustain me through the inevitable uh, ups and downs and, you know, days when I'm really questioning my, my life choices, maybe. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, Fingers it's crossed. hard slug for sure. Yeah, um, yeah. Oh, God, I really hope I get to the end of it. <laughs> Well, our, our fingers are also crossed for you. Thank you. Um, and I guess maybe you've touched on this a little bit already, but I'm curious as a parent and somebody with a full-time job who's also doing a PhD, how you set boundaries to your work. There's times where like my, my partner will, my wife will be like, she'll give me space and she'll she'll do stuff with the kids and and like buy me a morning if you like that sort of thing um that's super useful especially when you're like in the zone like it might mm -hmm. be you've done some really intensive writing on a friday or a thursday or something and you're like i can't i can't afford to stop for four days until my schedule kicks in where i'm going to do more writing I, I need to keep going with this um and on those occasions, you know, we'll, we'll work something out so that I can get a few hours in. Um, I think you need to figure out if you're a morning or evening person or, or, or more accurately, whether a morning or evening works best for you around your kids. The other question that we ask all our interviewees is how has COVID-19 changed your job and your daily tasks? Um, <laughs> I don't. I, I wonder if people out there have like the same sort of guilt that I've had, where you get all this free time, and you get so much more. Well, it feels like free time, and then you just kind of like, what? I need to do something special with this because it's this is like a 
it's a horrible moment, but at the same time, it's afforded me a really unique opportunity to, to, you know, capitalize on writing or whatever it is. I didn't. <laughs> I was homeschooling all the time and um, it just it, it just didn't seem to work out the way that I would have loved it to. Um, but the one thing that definitely changed for me personally was was like, and maybe this will make people cringe, but I actually like working from home. I switched, like I've mentioned a few times that I changed jobs. I work from home now and, and that was one of the big decisions I wanted to make. Like the kids, the age they are, it works really well for me to be super flexible and like super local, um, not not having to work like an hour away or anything. Um, and that in turn has afforded me an extra hour or two a day where I can find space to do um you know, to, to chip away at this hideous boulder in front of me and try and make it into something pretty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and in that effort to, to chip away at the boulder, uh, I'm wondering if you could describe what a, a day in the life looks like, looks like for you these days. Yeah, so I'll reread a little bit of what I've just been writing and I'll just I'll just pick it up and it might be that I write 200 words it might be that I write 4,000 words it depends on the flow and and how easy that bit of writing is uh, I, I don't know if you guys have, have, have been through this yet but sometimes you will read and read and read and read and read and then write like 200 words <laughs> You're like that was the hardest 200 words I've ever written and then other times you might write thousands of words and it just flows and, and it's got the reference. It's not just free thinking writing. It's you've got your, your cross-referencing, you've, you've, you've organized several authors into the same idea space and, and said, you know, it just works, right? Um, I just wish it was like that all the time. But that, that's, the, that's just part of the journey, right? Sometimes it's incredibly slow to churn out a tiny bit of writing and other times... It's, it's kind of a beautiful experience of just it all fits. Um, and as long as you're getting that second type every now and then, the, the, the struggling version where you're not getting very much out is kind of worth it. And, and you can be more resilient with that knowing that it's not all going to be like that. Um, and then probably every couple of months, I'll send a little bit off to my supervisor and hope to God that he says it's not terrible. Um, <laughs> which fortunately I got feedback like two weeks ago and he said he said that what I gave to him which was only about 3,000 words uh, I'm going to direct quote him now was uh, the most sophisticated writing I'd submitted so far which I can't tell is like a backhanded compliment or, <laughs> or, or like a slight criticism of like God can you imagine what the rest of your stuff was like but um, I'm taking it I'm taking it as, as a positive and yeah. It just gives you that extra bit of confidence of, okay, I know what good writing looks like now. That's mm -hmm. that's huge for me. Um, yeah. And you're going in the right direction, at least. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us on this interview today, Ed. I think we learned a lot from your experience. And with that, I really also want to thank our listeners for listening in this week. 
This was episode 63 in which we interviewed Ed Sadal, um, his PhD, and combining his PhD with work and family life. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and we'll be back next week with more on PhD life and research mechanics. Thank you so much for listening.